0: How do we as ordinary citizens build a sustainable social order in South Africa, especially in the context of a state which is failing to maintain its basic duties and obligations towards us as citizens? Well, joining me to discuss this question is Russell Lamberti. He's an economist with the business advocacy group Salkalija. Russell Lamberti, welcome to Solutions with David Ansar.
1: Thanks, Dave. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I've enjoyed your show in the past, and I'm looking forward to a great conversation.
0: Great, Russell. Well, let's first start off by surveying the landscape in South Africa at the moment. I think the last 10 years in particular, have seen the capacity of the state and governance really deteriorate in the country, and this is uh, manifesting many uh, social and economic problems. You're an economist by training and uh, by profession. Uh, but what do you see happening in South Africa? Because there seems to be quite widespread disaggregation and breakdown occurring in our society. Yeah, Dave, th- that's absolutely
1: true. I mean, South Africa—not uh, not exclusively in the world—but South Africa is certainly in a in a real pickle, uh, facing enormous challenges, um, and I think facing a breakdown of order. That's not uh, <laughs> that's not controversial. That's that's on display uh, very much you know, in most places where you go in South Africa and of course came to a head in the most sort of shocking way in July in KwaZulu-Natal, where we saw just a just a, a complete breakdown of, of civil and social order, causing hundreds of billions of rands worth of damage, um, wrecking towns and of course leading to loss of life and all sorts of awful things. So just a, a terrible manifestation of what's been really brewing I think for for several decades um, and certainly the last 10 to 15 years of, of you know mismanagement and so on in South Africa I, I, I suppose there's there's several layers of, of problem in South Africa that would take us maybe a few episodes to get through so we, we don't have to kind of do huge deep dives into into all of that I think I think at the most superficial level you've got um, badly Managed, you've got a badly managed state, a, a state that's been a state infrastructure that's been deprofessionalized and run as a kind of jobs for pals, uh, catered deployment sort of crony system. Um, and so you've deprofessionalized the civil service. Um, in a country where uh, it, it, it was always going to be difficult to have an effective civil service um when and this is sort of the next level of problem when you have a very centralized um uh, government structure on top of a very large and very complex uh country Uh, complex because of its size complex because of its its different uh people groups its different languages its different cultures and so on um so that you know that bureaucratic challenge was always going to be there um, and so it was, it was always absolutely critical that South Africa, that, that, the bureaucracy, that the, that the state infrastructure to make the unitary South Africa have some semblance of functionality had to be a meritocracy, had to be very professional. Um, and you know, that's what, what that required in the, in the changeover was, was a far longer period of, of, uh, of training for, for civil servants coming in, um, uh, and instead what we've gotten is unfortunately uh uh, uh uh sort of very rapid what we got was a rapid replacement of the old civil civil service replaced by not only a new new and inexperienced civil service but then one that came to be increasingly deployed um uh on on the basis of, of you know favors and, and cronyism and so on so um that's that's a huge problem and then i think at the most at, at sort of a very fundamental level um, South Africa as a unitary state, and, and you know, this is some. This is maybe a point that you that we, we might have sort of culminated to towards the end of the discussion, but we can sort of front load it a little bit. South Africa as a unitary state has always faced enormous challenges, um, from union in 1910 through to the apartheid era, through to the post 1994 era. Um, this unitary experiment has, has been going pretty poorly, I would say, overall. Um, it's had its moments, but by and large, it's never really worked at any one time for everyone in the country. Um, there's always been um, a fairly large set of winners and losers. And there's there's important political and, and sort of uh, uh, social reasons for that, which we can get into. So so on, on, on several levels, um, we've got this kind of state failure. But, but last thing I want to say about this particular point is that um, we must understand, and I think this is really critical, and I think this is a critical issue for, for the world right now, is that the state and, and its functions are not what constitute social order. Um, the state and its functions are a subset of, of this broader idea of social order. Uh, and really, when you think about this and you think about the nature of states and the nature of of communities and the nature of civil society organizations, and if you like, the the, the fabric of society that constitutes the social order, you start to realize that the state is actually quite a small portion of this broader thing that we call social order. Um, And that when the state starts to assume more and more functions of social order, you necessarily uh, gravitate towards disorder. So the state actually doesn't have the capacity and was never designed to be able to, um, to, to fill out this whole space of social order. It, it was always an administrative function that administered an, an already existing society, a society that had, that had structures of order, that had commercial order already. Now, government comes in and, and and it provides you know in, in, a, in a good case scenario uh, a very useful administrative um, uh, uh, sort of judicial uh, you know justice function and and potentially protective function security function um, uh, but but that is that, that is a service that is offered to a society that has broad mechanisms of order outside of the state and in a totalitarian uh, uh era, as it were, and with a government that's, that thinks increasingly that, that all of society and all decisions must be, uh, must be pulled toward itself, um, it starts assuming more and more of the function of order. And what you see at a local and lower level is, is um, disintegration of the, the old traditional social mechanisms of order as they get um, subsumed into, into the sort of state central state mandate. And that, I think, in South Africa's case, and, and it's a, as I said, again, it's, a, it's actually a global issue, is leading us to a place of increasing disorder that we struggle to put our finger on. But it's largely because at these, at these more local levels, I think we're seeing a loss of civil society infrastructure, as it were. And, and that's partly got to do with the centralizing tendency of the state. Excessive taxation, excessive regulation, regulating commerce, regulating how you can have a school, how you can do this and that, and the next thing—that um, all gets sucked into the state, and it's not a mechanism of order; it's actually a mechanism of disorder. And that's the—that's the paradox of um, of state growth: is that state growth looks like it's providing order to a society, but if it's coming at the expense of non-state mechanisms of order, then it's a, a disorderly trend.
0: Right, Russell. So we have the administrative state, which is the, the functions of uh, administering uh, security, uh, other civil functions. And then there's also the nation state, which is the conception of the idea of the country. Um, and so as you've suggested, the, the administrative state has become bloated, overly centralized, and is now crowding out civil society uh, to the detriment of, of, of many aspects of our, our social order. Uh, but then there's also this idea of the nation state, of the idea of South Africa. And you've alluded there to the fact that this concept of the unitary South Africa is perhaps under strain. Do you care to elaborate on, on some of those ideas? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that um, when you think
1: of a unitary state, um, I think the first thing to say is that you know it's very important that one recognizes that there's several forms and several um, degrees of centralization that a unitary state or nation state, as it were, um, can take. So uh, the United States of America is strictly a unitary state, but it it has this um, you know very strongly embedded federal structure, a, 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 f- a federal and decentralized structure which, um, when you look at, for example, how how America has managed the the COVID pandemic, um, has, it's just been really fascinating. Whatever your opinions on on the various actions are, what's been fascinating to see is how fifty states within America have been able to do fifty different experiments on on uh, COVID policy, and within those states, you've had multiple experiments at at county and city level and so on with various mandates and, and, and all the rest of it so it's really kind of this this uh, system of decentralization under a unitary state called the United States of America um, the united kingdom is is uh, a lot more centralized and you got get a lot more centralized uh, governments in in europe germany is a bit more federal um, so there's all kinds of ways that 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 a unitary state can, can function from a centralization perspective. South Africa, uh, in writing, in the constitution, appears to be quite decentralized and quite federal. Um, but in, in, in practice, uh, de facto, um, it struggles to, to really achieve the kinds of decentralization that was envisaged by some uh, signatories and some uh, crafters of of that constitution. And in effect, South Africa is actually a very centralized order. And what you find is that the, the, the provinces have, have fairly limited autonomy, certainly find it extremely difficult to raise revenue, um, you know, autonomously. Um, and the same is true at a municipal level, though we, you know, municipalities do, do have, you know, several functions that they can administer and so on. Um, in practice, we see a huge amount of dominance from the center in, in South Africa and, and, a, and, and, a, and a difficulty in uh, in governing at, at a kind of local level for for various reasons. Um so so that's that's what I would say. Now, now let me just say quickly that I think the the rule of thumb here, Dave, is is that is something like this for me. Um the the size the, 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 the cultural diversity and the, and the complexity of a particular country um, is, is roughly going to determine how much decentralization that, that governance system requires. Um, so you know, if we take a place like Denmark, it's a, it's a pretty culturally very homogenous society. It speaks basically one language. Um, it's a pretty small place. I think Denmark's population is probably around 5 million or so. Um, it's, it's, a, it's an isolated little island, very homogenous, fairly, fairly uncomplex as far as countries and societies go. Um, and what you'll find in a place like Denmark, and I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on the, the, the depths of their political structure, but you're going to find um, the ability to have a fair degree of centralization and even the ability to tolerate a degree of kind of socialism and 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 quite quite heavy social democracy or welfareism. Um, uh, you get you get other countries that are very different from that. South Africa is one of them. Brazil is another one. Very very large geography. Now, geography large geography doesn't always mean significant complexity. Um, you know, very sparsely populated countries might not be particularly complex, even though they're large. Um, but you're talking you know many 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 millions you know a few hundred million people in a place like brazil um, several different different cultures and backgrounds but by and large by and large one language Um, south africa uh, very complex very large big populations north of 60 million now um, you know 10 or 11 you know 11 official languages um, probably eight or nine you know Predominantly, you know, strongly spoken languages, widely spoken languages around the country, high levels of complexity over a very large geography, very different histories and very different cultures, having to 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 figure out life cheek by jowl together. And so, I think in a place like South Africa, um, if you if you cut it across these dimensions of size, social complexity, um, you know, uh, diversity, and so on, um, we are absolutely a, a, a sort of prime classic candidate for a much more decentralized political structure. Now, either that sits within a unitary state that devolves power you know, significantly down to the local level and, and therefore sits in a kind of Swiss sense as, a, as quite a weak um, central authority, um, really just this plays this kind of oversight role um, has a council of, of leaders um, and, and, you know, really tries to devolve as much as possible down to sort of Canton or, or local level. Um, so that's, that, that's one way to have a decentralized system within a unitary order. Um, and then what you would tend to get in a system like that is the idea of, of South Africa, the idea of a sort of very strong South African patriotism um, would probably start to dissipate. Um, it wouldn't have to disappear, um, but it would probably dissipate towards a more regional uh, re- kind of regional cultural uh, uh, sort of set of affinities, um, but wouldn't have to disappear. So, so um, South Africa as, as a sort of idea could could remain um, and the people who live here could, could uh, see that as some sort of broad geographic identifier. But nonetheless, um, you could have this very, very decentralized political order where you get a large degree of self-sorting between people who want to who want to live in different ways and, and according to different customs and cultures and, and, and so on. And then, of course, you know, beyond that, you get you start getting into into the realm of things like secession, things like like actual breakups where you form new unitary states uh, at, at smaller scale. And. Um, in, in ways that, that to varying degrees might start to approximate what we think of as the nation-state. Um, in other words, the, the, uh, the nation or the group of people that identifies as a particular nation or ethnic group starts to then appropriate, uh, uh, to move towards actually having their own state. Um, we might think of Croatia as, as something approximating a nation state or, or Slovenia um, or Portugal you know Portugal is, is 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 a nation state. South Africa is not a nation state it's a it's a it's a sort of civil government presiding over what was basically a colonial territory made up of very many different groups um, and so I, I think that would be the distinction between a state and a nation state um, to the extent that you think there are such things as nations and as peoples and cultures and that's uh, people differ on that, but I think uh, we can get into that today, perhaps, but I think that that's fairly self-evident. I think that there are different people groups. I don't think they're exclusive. I don't think they have to be rigid. I think those definitions are fluid. They always are. Um, and I think those groups interact with one another to varying degrees based on all sorts of complex factors. So these are the sorts of real complexities that, that South Africa faces. I am I, um, I don't think that some sort of breakup into multiple states, multiple sovereign territories is necessarily realistic, necessarily desirable. Um, That can go very badly. Um, And I would reject a a sort of disorderly, uh, chaotic breakup of South Africa. I think that would be a potentially awful outcome. Um, I think South Africans need to be thinking really hard about what's gone wrong in the last 100 years or so since union, what's gone wrong in the last 25 years, 27 years since 1994, Um, and really, for the first time, start thinking about actually trying a properly decentralized political system. Uh, I don't think the ANC are going to relinquish that. And therefore, we've got to think of ways to, to start decentralizing South Africa kind of de facto. And that's maybe some, some other topics we can get into uh, in the course of this chat.
0: Yeah, Russell, we had your colleague, Martin van Staden, who's a, a legal scholar on the podcast. And he was saying uh, quite similarly to you that we could actually, because of the breakup of the state in terms of the administrative state and its uh, declining capacity, we could see federalism coming essentially through the back door that this pressure ends up um, that many communities, for example, in the Western Cape, uh, decide that you know they're not going to uh, sit on their hands and, and tolerate the breakdown of, for example, energy infrastructure or, or, or other aspects, other critical areas in which the state must deliver. And that they essentially start from the bottom up uh, building these capabilities. Um, but I just wanted to, to touch on uh, this idea of cultural communities that you spoke about. and. You mentioned a couple of examples from the former Yugoslavia, and now I think that that's a, a cautionary example of how things can go quite badly, and you can have balkanization That's the etymology of the of, of that term comes from from that region where you have ethnicities uh, and uh, kind of ethnic nationalism basically uh, driving people apart and, and driving them to to conflict. So how do you avoid that? I understand that people can self-sort. If, if, for example, you're an Indian person and you want to live in Chatsworth with your community, there's something quite positive about that. Um, If you come from the rural Eastern Cape and uh, you identify with a particular set of uh, cultural and linguistic traditions uh, that you strongly identify with, but how do we prevent a kind of downside scenario where you have this disorderly breakup of South Africa and, and people starting to violently compete for, uh, for resources or advantage or, or, or political dominance. Um, in, and the, that creates all sorts of uh, negative downsides.
1: Look, I mean, you're asking the absolutely critical question of how to solve this sort of complexity. So it's, it's no, there's no easy answer to this, but I would sort of challenge some, some of the inherent premises uh, you know, embedded in your question, Um, you know where where do we see currently the 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 highest degree of of conflict and political um, let's call it uh, unsettledness as it were um, in in the former Yugoslavia Um, it's not in it's not in Slovenia it's not in Croatia Um, it's in Bosnia-Herzegovina you know, it's it's in uh, Serbia with Serbia. with and in the, in, in their relations with Kosovo. Um, it's in the countries where you have a dominant uh, uh, ethnic majority, which imposes a particular cultural uh, uh, zeitgeist or or or, or flavour um, on on the country. It it it, it's, it imposes a particular linguistic. Uh, uh, Atmosphere, particular cultural atmosphere on the country. Um, that's natural, by the way. That's not a, that's not a bad thing. That's what that's what cultures do. That's what the Bosniak uh, Muslims, you know, who make up I think roughly fifty percent of of uh, Bosnia Herzegovina. Um, that's how they that's how they operate. Um, but the conflict points, Dave, are still in the countries that have not sorted out. Their kind of cultural self-determination issues, and and uh, you know, for me, I find that I find that very fascinating. So yes, you had very short conflict for a place like Slovenia. I think there was about a six-day war in 1992 or or somewhere around there. Um, And since then, it's been an absolutely peaceful, placid, prosperous place. Okay. Now, um, (laughs) there's lots you can say about that, but um go and compare that to the multi-ethnic states that haven't figured out the solution yet and this is also a caution as to the limits of federalism because you've got uh, republika Srpska um in bosnia and herzegovina which is a predominantly serbian area which i think has long had this desire to secede and join and join serbia um What what they arranged for Republika Srpska was uh, a tremendous uh, degree of autonomy, more than more than most federal systems uh, allow. So it's it's almost being governed as the sort of quasi-Serbian state within within the broader Bosnian uh, Herzegovina polity. Um, But that's actually not been enough, and and what they've experienced is is ongoing attempts by the Bosniak majority to kind of impose. A particular national order, a particular cultural kind of order and national political structure upon them. And so you've got these recurring grievances um, in these sorts of regions. Um, if we bring this to South Africa, um, you know, I have no doubt that the the post-94 era has uh, has been an improvement, a tremendous improvement on the political you know, operating software of, of the pre 94 era. Um, I mean, that's, that's inarguable and the degree to which that has calmed, um, animosities, um, and calmed tensions between South Africa's population groups is I think, you know, largely inarguable, but, um, it's not as though we live in, in a, in a multicultural peaceful utopia here, Dave, um, we have tremendous levels of violence and increasingly um, tremendous levels of um, racial, political agitation. We know right now that we live under uh, enormous volume of race-based laws in South Africa, something that, that uh, you and I oppose, something that the Institute of Race Relations um, strongly opposes and many other civil society organizations. Um, so, so the multicultural unitary order um, in, my, in my estimation, is not lending itself to, to peace and stability. And as I said, um, the KwaZulu-Natal riots of, of July um, were a manifestation of a tre- tremendously deep level of, of social dysfunction, that clearly um, the present uh, order, the present unitary order is, is not successfully mediating. I mean, literally no police showed up you know, at, at this particular uh, set of events uh, for a few days. Um, and then after the fact, they kind of arrived. So, um, so I would say that, that um, if we're talking about peaceful relations, I mean, it's true that, that certain kinds of, of hard um, secessionist nationalist um, breakup can degenerate into terrible violence terrible uh, uh jingoism and um and kind of violent nationalism and this is history has shown us that this can certainly happen but history has also shown us dave that that um communities can self sort they can create fairly formal political structures and maybe even states that approximate the nation, that, that approximate the nation state, as it were, um, and that that actually creates a platform for tremendous peace, uh, and then they can interact with the other cultural communities on a diplomatic basis, on a very cordial basis, um, and that's that's also a way to to generate peace, stability, and order. So, so political separation. Um, of any kind. It doesn't have to be secession. It can be it can be significant devolution of, of many functions to the local level, um, uh, including revenue raising functions, uh, and, and, and all kinds of, of, I mean, there's really a, a whole spectrum of political, uh, let's call it technology that could be brought to bear on any of these solutions. You know, there's 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 a there's a range of options and Um, South Africa is a unique place. I mean, everywhere in the world's unique. South Africa has its own set of problems, its own geography, its own people, its own history, its own institutional uh, sort of legacy. And so it finds itself in a place where it needs to, you know, South Africans, South African leaders, uh, South African political system, I think really needs to think much more carefully about the kinds of solutions that are going to generate lasting peace and stability and genuine goodwill between South Africa's people groups. I don't think um, forcing rapid uh, uh, cultural kind of integration and assimilation in a very sort of modern multiculturalist sense, in a sort of multicultural cosmopolitan sense, um, is a sustainable model for the entire country. I think you're going to get certain areas of the country, cities, Johannesburg, Cape Town, you know, these big inherently cosmopolitan cities and cosmopolitanism I think can thrive in those places and I think that's a good thing Um, I think there's a great space for cosmopolitanism but that's not going to be the model necessarily for Zululand and that's not necessarily going to be be the model for the Karoo um, and for these other places and that's also okay you know and so I I talk about in these in in the way we we think about these structures as something approximating a diversity of diversities, you know, that that some political organization in this, I mean, certainly in the major city, its absolutely unavoidable that you have, and will have a multicultural cosmopolitan flavor and makeup to those political systems. And then there's other parts of the country that are going to be very distinctively uh, uh, cultural. Um, and And I think that those, if we can figure out a way, for for that diversity of diversities as it were to to coexist and to kind of interact on a on a peaceful orderly basis and allow for this real significant decentralization of of governance and and to some degree of sovereignty whether we call that final result south africa whether we call it you know a federation of south african states whether we call it you know whatever we call that result you know it, it as long as it's delivering what it needs to deliver, which is flourishing, peace, good relationships between individuals, but also with you know between communities. And that allows South Africa's cultural communities to really self-determine in the way that that they want, um, including in their own languages. Um you know I think I think it would be a real tragedy if if some of these beautiful South African languages are lost to the internationalization, of South Africa and to the kind of anglicization, the, the hyper-anglicization that we're seeing in, in many other parts of the world. So, you know, that, that might come across a little vague. There's, there's a lot of complexity beneath what I've just said there. But these are the sorts of ways I think we need to be thinking about, uh, about order in South Africa. Because South Africa, Dave, to, to sort of wrap this whole question up and, and to take it to the start of what you asked, South Africa is, to my mind right now, an incredibly disorderly place. And I think it's on on its way rapidly to becoming more and more disorderly. And I think these elections that we've just been through probably usher us into an even more disorderly uh, era. And I hope that that creates the urgency for us to to actually expand our minds, not close our minds, but expand our minds on uh,
0: political options in in the next era, as it were. So, Russell, the great promise of 1994 was essentially one of an individual rights framework Freedom to associate with uh, whoever you choose, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of belief, uh, freedom of expression, uh, to articulate your your view of the world and to to kind of choose the direction of your life. And so that individual rights framework has been assaulted essentially by the rampant racial nationalism and a lot of the socialist policies of the ANC. And perhaps uh, the CODESA negotiations, uh, many of the participants, there were somewhat naive about the extent of the, the, the power of ANC ideology uh, to centralize and command and control kind of philosophy um, and to basically impose its, its will on the rest of society. But nevertheless, that, uh, that dream of uh, the, the kind of the rainbow nation, if you will, uh, I think it is something worth worth aspiring towards. So, how do we reconcile these ideas of cultural communities that you've that you've discussed and laid out with an individual rights framework? Uh, because it seems to me important that we avoid a kind of a cultural essentialism or a racial essentialism, just because you yeah. look a certain way and that you're born into a certain community, that these are now the beliefs that you have to have, these are the ways Absolutely. that you ought to behave. Um, so mm-hmm. how do we how do we reconcile those two those two ideas and that tension? Yeah, this
1: is this is again an excellent and difficult question. And I echo your the last bit of your question there. I mean, um, getting into into racial essentialism, genetic essentialism, all this kind of stuff um, is is a complete no go. That's the ditch on the other side of the road. You know, so if there's if there's a ditch on one side of the road that says that there's no differences between people. We're all just kind of um, potential blank slates um, that will assimilate into this kind of uh, amorphous uh, uh, new liberal democratic man. Um, You know, because there's some conceptions of multiculturalism that actually see a and desire a a sort of full homogenization of of man you know so that we we all ultimately assimilate into the same uh uh culture We, we we end up looking the same we end up talking the same language there's there's a there's a single global sort of culture or universal kind of culture so i i think that there's significant problems with that not least of which is I just don't think that's how humans behave. I think humans are inherently cultural. I think they're in here, they have an inherent affinity to, to their place, their people, their culture, their language, their history. That's not rigid. That doesn't have to be essentialist. That's fluid. It's, it's, it's interactive with other cultures. That's all true. But, but that's, that's a, a very realistic picture of, of the human condition is that we, we are contextual beings. We're, we're not just... Floating um, out of context, born into a state, as it were. You know, we're born into families, we're born into communities, we're born into cultures. The first, the first thing children know is not the state, um, is not the social contract, is is not the political order. Um, the first thing they know is their their kin. You know, their their culture, their customs. So. So I think there's a ditch on that side of the road. The ditch on the other side of the road is turning that, as you say very eloquently, there, Dave, is turning that essentialist is 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 you know having some sort of um, some sort of racial, genetic, skin color um, tests or requirements. Um, the, these are you know that's the path of of some of history's greatest mistakes and follies and and tragedies. So uh, you know there's an absolute ditch on that side of the road. Um, you know, I did a thread on Twitter recently about English South Africans and how I think that English South Africans form a distinct cultural community. Um, uh, it doesn't mean it's rigid, it doesn't mean it's uh, narrow, it, it's quite a broad, actually, it's quite a broad cultural community. Um, and, you know, I got, I got the usual sort of people saying that that I'm I'm arguing for some sort of white essentialist, you know, idea. Um, and and the, the the simplest way to to rebut that is to say you know if if you know anyone, I mean and there's many other ways that this can be true, but if you know anyone, any white English people who've adopted black children, um, those children are being raised um, in English society, they're being raised in English culture, South African English culture. Now they will have they will have a complex identity, and that's cool that's fine um, but but of course anyone can assimilate uh, into into a culture, um, there were white Zulus. Uh, there's there's been many white Zulus um, in in South Africa's history, or maybe not many, but but several uh, well-known uh, British settlers who who assimilated into Zulu culture, became chiefs and became white Zulus. So um, you know, racial essentialism agreed completely out and and must be rejected. Um, uh, I think I think the the issue that we're going for here, Dave, is the ability to to self-sort um, in in various ways and in, in natural ways that people are drawn to. Um, cultural communities are a reality. Um, if I say to you, if if I ask you to picture an Indian, South African, and an Afrikaner. Um, you're going to develop a picture in your mind um, of two different people. Um, They live in different places. um, They do different things. They they have different cultural reference points. They speak different languages. um, They probably got different religions. um, They're different people. um, And they're part of communities that are quite different. Now, at the core of each of those communities, um, people are very different. So someone who finds themselves at the core of Zulu culture um, is very different from someone who uh, finds it incredibly difficult to relate to someone who finds themselves at the core of English culture, the core of Africana culture. Uh, those, these are the sorts of people who barely speak another language. They, they speak their own language. They, they are very fixed to their own customs. Um, and then you get people on the edges of those cultures, Dave, who, who are the people that build bridges. They're the people who congregate in the cosmopolitan areas, in, in, in towns and cities. They're the Zulus who can speak perfect English. Um, they're the Afrikaners who can speak perfect English or the English people who can speak great Afrikaans or Zulu um, or whatever other languages uh, one, one talks about. And these are the people that interact um, in cities. They, they build bridges. They're the cosmopolitan uh, uh, portions of those societies that intermarry with other cultures um, much more um, but at the core of those cultures uh, people tend to marry within those cultures and they tend to, to cultivate life within those cultures so that's all a way of saying that I think I think we are first and foremost to varying degrees um, creatures of our cultural context that doesn't mean that that context is fixed or immutable or inescapable um, but it's real and it's attractive to, to most people. You know, Most people want to stay within their cultural contexts and cultivate a life within those cultural contexts and be relevant in, in the hierarchies of those cultures. Um, so that's one of the markers of, of understanding you know, which culture you, you find affinity towards is, is within which culture and within which cultural institutions do you aspire to to, uh, to to have status? Do you aspire to to climb up in, in, in the hierarchy? Um, you know in the Zulu kingdom there's a particular hierarchy in the Zulu kingdom and Zulu, Zulu people and certain Zulu people have have a tremendous aspiration to have status and hierarchy within within that particular context and the rest of South Africa doesn't really have that uh, an Africana living in the Karoo doesn't aspire to, to achieve status um, in that particular hierarchy. So that for me is the, the kind of one very broad brushstroke way of starting to talk about the reality of different cultures that to, to get to your question, I think that, and this goes back to the, the broader concept I wanted to get across at the, at the top of the discussion, which is, which is that this, In the same way, Dave, that the state isn't the whole of the social order, um, the state isn't the whole of what it means to protect and defend individual rights. Individual rights, um, they need real mechanisms of of protection and enforcement. Um, And in the same way that an overbearing unitary state loses control over over its ability to govern, to, to create order, I think it loses its control to actually protect individual rights. And again, I think we're seeing that in South Africa, with the awful violations of, of people's rights at you know in, in many many ways and in many levels, the violation of people's safety, the tremendous violence against uh, that that we see against women in this country and women and children. Um, these are instances in which, in which the state, whatever it says in its constitution, um, has actually simply lost the ability to, to, to actuate and to actualize in, in, in the real world. And my contention would be that, a, that cultural communities um, or communities of, of any kind, I mean, yes, cultural is, is, is one such local smaller community. Uh, but you could have you could have different kinds of communities that don't necessarily uh, uh, see themselves along along cultural or racial or, or ethnic or, or uh, you know those sorts of lines, but but lower level uh, um, mechanisms of order. Um, that's actually where you see the sort of instantiation and the defence of of what we call individual rights. So the state has some role to play in that. But if you require it to play too much, it actually can't play it. So I think that it's in the development of um, strong local institutions, many of which will find themselves um, centered around common culture. Okay, that's just how humans organize. So they don't have to be centered in that way. But many... Many um, institutions of order express themselves in a kind of uh, a cultural context. But even if they don't, it's those, it's those mechanisms of order that I argue are where the actual defense of rights emerges from. Um, in reality, um, in a real society, on the ground, day to day, you know, communities uh, defending weaker people within their community from predation, from, from crime um, and all these sorts of things. And I just don't think that the state um, making some uh, theoretical contract with the individual is sufficient to, to actually protect that individual. I think within he has the state and he has the individual. And within that you have what, you know, the, the American conservatives of, of the 20th century called these mediating institutions, these intermediate non-state cultural and community institutions that actually uh, protect and defend uh, uh, individual rights and liberties. Um, so I think that's really critical to, 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 to sort of starting to solve this, this potential conundrum. There's one last little point here and a lot of liberals uh, point this out. And they say, well, if you don't have the state as the as the sort of final arbiter of, of those interactions, you can get tyrannical communities. You can get a community that doesn't uphold and defend individual liberties. Um, it might be very collectivist. It might oppress uh, uh, people in a certain way. And those people might find themselves trapped within that context, and they need a state to come and rescue them. This takes us down a a much deeper and more complex discussion. So I I kind of, I suppose, want to introduce it more than necessarily explore it. I think it's something that could be explored, you know, another time. But I think it approximates something like the complexity of America going into Afghanistan to to, to make it a, a liberal democratic order that respects individual rights. It's very very difficult. It's very difficult to go in, into a cultural context and really impose um, liberal individualism on a community that that doesn't necessarily have the uh, cultural and, and moral wherewithal in their history to kind of um, to to uh, cope with that and to facilitate that okay um, So so there's a real tension here between a kind of universalist liberal conception of of the rights of the individual and then realizing that actually in reality, you have to kind of outsource that protection of individual rights in reality to these local non-state structures and institutions of order. And then um, having to deal with the fact that some of those are not going to protect individual rights or uphold individual rights in quite the same way as, as the liberal universalist conception of them would have it? And then how do you mediate that moral kind of conflict between the states and the community? And if you want to go in and impose that liberal individualistic kind of uh, uh, structure, are you doing other damage that that local cultural community can't cope with or is going to do great harm for it in the long run? These are very, very delicate questions, and it's one of the reasons why conservatives, conservative uh, philosophy and theory, uh, uh, is is far more cautious of going into uh, local community context and and meddling and and trying to uh, uh, impose an order um, that that might look good from from the outside, but once you impose it on that very complex local context doesn't necessarily play out quite how you thought it would and creates all kinds of other tensions within that society. So that's a real issue, but it's it's one that I think has to be explored a lot. I think that the main point here for me is is non-state institutions are critical to the protection of of, uh, of individual rights in reality.
0: Now, Russell, as Mark Oppenheimer argued in a recent episode of my podcast, the price of freedom is constant vigilance and it really requires individuals and communities to guard against infringements on their rights, and you can't simply outsource that to the state. Um, But the classical liberal conception of the state is also this night watchman state, the minimal state, uh, that focuses on a few key areas maintaining law and order and the rule of law, uh, protecting the sovereignty of of the state itself uh, from external threats. Um, And surely the problem is just that the state is as we started in this conversation, gotten too big, it's gotten too involved in the affairs of individuals. It's been captured by a, a rapacious elite. Uh, it's very ideologically motivated. Now we're seeing uh, the hegemony of this uh, dominant political party, the ANC, starting to break down. Uh, and these last elections, I think, were a very telling example of that. Um, and we're also seeing. Uh, in parallel to that, the rise of a lot more pluralism in our political space, there's a lot of small interest parties, local interest parties, uh, there's a, a, a fracturing of the opposition, but it's also grown in aggregate terms. Uh, so surely you know, this is the po- process of the democratic uh, maturity that's, that's underway and removing that, that, that dominant uh, group from the levers of power of the state, introducing much more kind of uh, pluralistic, coalition-driven kind of model of governance that might be able to uh, better express the, the kind of the very heterogeneous interests that exist in South Africa. Yeah, there's a lot
1: there. Um, I I think broadly, your observation is 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 correct in the sense that I think I think that the structure we have now in South Africa is just Simply unsustainable. It, it, it's not, it doesn't jive and mesh with the social realities on the ground. And I suppose that's a, another important concept for, for people to try and take away from this is you, you, you can have a, a political structure and then you've got a social reality. And the degree to which those are misaligned, you're just going to have uh, uh, unease, un, unsettledness, conflict. Political uh, tension and volatility until that structure aligns with the reality of of the society that you're in. So that's what South Africa is going through. Um, the transition from from the apartheid regime to to the uh, democratic uh, constitutional order in 1994 to 96 was a way to start to start doing that. And, and I think people need to see that transition as, as uh, in some respects very progressive in the sense of creating real progress towards doing this, towards creating this alignment. Um, but unfortunately, not going far enough um, and having elements within it that actually start to maybe perpetuate a and a pulling apart, again, of the political structure and the, and the social reality. So um, if we criticize the present order, you know, the, the straw man is to say, well, we're somehow harking for, for previous uh, apartheid era sort of stuff. I mean, no, um, the, the issue is um, how do we now get, get the political order so that it matches the social reality Um, that's the next challenge we have. And it should be, it should, it's everyone's challenge. It's not just the challenge of Afrikaners or English South Africans or white South Africans or Indian South Africans. It's the challenge of all South African communities to be starting to think in this direction. So I think, and I think as you, as you rightly say, I think through the electoral process that's starting to happen now, I think the electoral process is very inefficient, very slow, and very kind of low traction way to to achieve this, but it's a way, and it's a way that this is starting to express itself. Um, I think you know, you spoke about the the, the classical liberal conception of, of the of the night watchman small state, and of course, you know me, Dave. I, I'm I'm very very much in line with with small government. Um, but the the real question is, how is it that governments are allowed to grow? Because any bureaucracy, any government institution has a tendency to grow. I mean, this is just a simple fact of history. Governments grow. And when do they stop? They stop when they hit real opposition, not when they hit sort of de jure textual opposition in some written constitution, uh, you know, or some judge rules against them in some particular matter and, you know, so on. I mean, you know, th- th- those are very, uh, uh, temporary and sort of toothless ways in which in which state power and sort of elite power is checked. Um, and as many uh, historical sort of political realists have noted, the only thing that ultimately checks power is, is power. And so what do we mean by that? Uh, in a South African context, in any kind of state context right now, I think what you've seen is the loss of alternative centers of power. Um, in, in the old Greek classical literature on, on the republic, the idea was that you had several real centers of power, you had a, a demos, you had a democracy, but you also had a kind of aristocracy, you had a landowning class and it wasn't a one man one vote system, it was a, it was a system of balanced, real balanced powers. I think what the what what the sort of liberal conception of the state then tried to do, and you see this in the American Constitution, was take that good idea. We 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 all recognise that power should be diffuse. Uh, when it's concentrated in, in in a few hands, no matter who they are, right wing, left wing, capitalist, socialist, you know, it 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 ends badly generally. So we want diffuse power. And so what we did is we wrote a kind of synthetic. Uh, uh, separation of powers into our constitutional orders so we will have courts and we will have a legislature and we will have these sorts of things and i just think that those the, the, uh, uh depending on the on the social reality that that you face those are quite weak at actually constraining the growth of the state and actually allowing real alternative centres of power to develop so i think what south africa has to do is by all means, you know, vote different parties in and and, and create uh, electoral illegitimacy for 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 the government. No, no question. I think that's that's that has uh, political power and purchase at some level. I think it's a slow process, and I think it's an imperfect process, but it's it's a process. Um, but I think at a much more fundamental level, is communities again in South Africa, whether it's cultural or, or other, need to start building real institutions getting you know getting real funding and starting to actually build alternative centers of power now that's not of of some kind of sovereign authority where you then will go and attack the government in some sort of civil war that is creating oppositional real actionable opposition um, not just political party electoral opposition, but real in in day to day life opposition to 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 various state policies and directives. And yes, that 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 includes the ability to to start engaging in civil disobedience for for manifestly unjust and destructive laws. You know, we have a rule in South Africa that says you can't produce energy um, beyond a certain level and and sell it into the grid uh, without all kinds of permissions and without all kinds of you know, things. And you're basically barred from, we're barred essentially from, from producing energy for ourselves, okay? But to my mind, that's intolerable, that's unjust. And we need, a, we need but, but if you're gonna disobey that, okay, you need real power. You, you need the ability to disobey that and not have the arms of the state come and smash that down and, and, and close that down, okay? So you've got to actually start creating kind of real power opposition, okay? It's subversive, but it can also be done in a very legitimate way and in a way that follows tried and tested principles of, of what we would call constitutionalism, uh, drawing on ancient principles of law um, and actually opposing uh, unjust state laws in that way. So I think, I think people have to be thinking about that in addition to the electoral stuff. Dave, I, I, the, the electoral stuff that you cite is certainly nice to see. Um, it was great to see the ANC going very, very low in the Western Cape and, and getting sort of rejected in, in, in you know, large parts of the country. Um, but it's going to take, I think, a lot more than that, particularly if the ANC starts to go rogue and actually uh, uh, you know, disobey the, the electoral mandates that are, that are given by the electorate. Um, that is a risk that I think we have to uh, plan for that scenario. Um, and uh, and continue to build alternative mechanisms of order and centers of real power.
0: Russell Lamberti, thank you very much for joining me on Solutions with David Ansara.
1: Thanks, Dave.
0: If you enjoyed this conversation and you're watching on YouTube, please do leave a like and subscribe to the channel if you haven't done so already. And if you're listening on your preferred podcast platform, please do subscribe there as well and leave a five-star review. That really helps the show to grow. My name is David Ansara. Until next week, take care.